Hey everyone and welcome to the 15th episode of the Liam McCollum Show. I was supposed to upload another interview last week and kind of keep at this pace of releasing two a week. I, I really like it. it kind of keeps me busy, has some structure to it during this crazy time. Um, but I had some tech issues, so I'm gonna, but I'm gonna try to continue to do that with two every week. Today I'm gonna interview Mark Thornton about the current economic crisis and a little bit about certain figures throughout history who have continuously predicted economic recessions. Mark actually predicted the housing bubble in 08, um, all the way back in 03. Other Austrian economists were, were saying that there was a housing bubble forming and a lot of people laughed at him. There are some interviews of people laughing when they say that housing prices are gonna fall. Um, and M Mark was one of those people that was made fun of. So um, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna talk a little bit about people who have constantly predicted it over time, the theories behind these predictions and who gets it wrong. So here's Mark. Hey everybody, I'm Dr. Mark Thornton. I work at the Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama, and we are the foremost uh, disseminators of Austrian school economics. Uh, we're a nonprofit organization, uh, and I've been working for them for many years, uh, and it's a real pleasure, and I hope you all go to mises.org and check us out. Well, yeah, thanks so much for joining. Um Today, I really just wanted to talk about the economy and uh, Austrian business cycle theory and the people who have been getting it right for decades. Um, but really quick, do you want to just give a basic overview of what Austrian business cycle theory is and um, maybe then talk about other theories that are more mainstream? Sure, I'd love to. I have a new book out called The Skyscraper Curse and how... Austrian economists predicted every major economic crisis going back a hundred years. And so if you really want to get into the weeds, uh, it's a very inexpensive and very readable book uh, and explains all the stuff we're going to be talking about today in much greater detail. But basically the Austrian business cycle theory, uh, is an economic theory of the business cycles, the ups and downs, uh, in the economy, the uh, growth in the economy, the recessions and economic crisis in the economy. And as I said, it's an economic theory of the business cycle. Most other theories of the business cycles are not really truly economic, and I'll, I'll explain why. But first of all, uh, this, the Austrian business cycle theory starts with distortions from the Federal Reserve in terms of their fixing interest rates in the economy uh, where they think they can apply essentially price controls to interest rates. And this ends up misleading entrepreneurs into the true underlying fundamentals in an economy because the interest rate really tells us a great deal of what's going on. Should we um, conserve on capital because interest rates are high uh, or should we splurge uh, when interest rates are really low, or should we try to invent new ways of doing things? Uh, because we have access to credit um, at very low rates and, uh, you know, essentially for a long period of time, uh, this, this past decade, we've had near zero interest rates 
Uh, and that's never happened in history. And as a result, you're seeing lots of things that have never happened in the history of mankind, like uh, negative interest rates on government bonds uh, in European countries and in Japan. And then just recently, the price of oil in the futures market went negative uh, by a considerable amount. Okay, so you, you, this is causing all sorts of distortions like that. But basically, artificially low interest rates encourages entrepreneurs out there to invest in long-term projects that when prices and interest rates eventually rise, which of course they eventually have to, um, all these long-term projects are revealed to be male investments or bad investments. And you get this sort of clustering of economic error in the economy. Um, so with the Fed and its artificially low interest rates, during the bubble, everybody's making money. All assets, no matter what they are, including land, uh, increase in value by a considerable amount. Uh, everybody's got a job. We just had record un record low unemployment um, just prior to this crisis. And, uh, you know, stock markets were at all-time highs. Bond markets were at all-time highs. Everything was uh, making money. And uh, eventually, of course, that's going to change. And you're going to see uh, that lots of businesses, many businesses, especially those that have to think long-term like, pharmaceutical companies and computer chip manufacturers and things like that, they're all going to have trouble and they're all going to have to lay off workers. They're going to have to, uh, you know, shut down operations. Uh, they're going to have to maybe go bankrupt. And so you eventually you get this clustering of errors in the economy and the uh, virus that has afflicted our economy just basically triggered this transition into an economic crisis, which would have happened anyways. And we can tell that uh, by looking at individual sectors and markets in the economy prior to the onset of the virus. And we see all sorts of trouble looming, uh, ready to come forth and uh, ultimately cause this economic crisis. Mm. Do you want to maybe talk or refute the point that, well, hey, because there's so much economic progress, why not just continue to do what we're doing? Um, what's the alternative? Well, you can't just keep out with interest rates um, artificially low forever. Uh, eventually, that's going to cause a depletion of resources, and you're going to see upticks in prices. And, uh, you know, so what entrepreneurs expected to see uh, no longer come about. So in general, not necessarily with this crisis, but in general, uh, what happens when a normal economy would produce one or two computer chip uh, manufacturing sites with, for new, uh, better chips, uh, but instead four or five or six companies start that same process? Well, in the process of developing these new factories, what they're going to find is that the the price of land for the best locations is higher than they expected. Uh, the 
wage rates for the technical people in those computer chip uh, factories, uh, all of a sudden, uh, the wages of the best people uh, get bid up in the process of developing these factories uh, and everything else that goes along with it that's specific to computer chip manufacturing uh, is higher than expected. And when you get on the other side of this and you're starting to produce your computer chips and all six of these uh, factories come online, all of a sudden, you know, the demand hasn't increased. It may actually have decreased. Mm -hmm. And so you have, uh, you know, the problem of trying to sell your chips. What's going to happen is that the price of those computer chips is going to fall. So you have a situation where the, yes, the low interest rates, easy availability of credit, you know, started this process in motion, but the entrepreneur as the process takes place, finds that the cost of producing the factories was higher than they anticipated. Mm. And once they all come online, the revenue that they get from selling the chips, they're selling fewer chips at lower prices than they expected. Well, all of a sudden, their projection into the future of profitability because of the artificially low interest rates is turning out wrong. Their costs are higher and their revenues are less. And so instead of making profits, they're making losses. Um, and they may not be able to, to sustain uh, their business operations. And as a result, you have this cluster of errors and you have uh, everything from you know, cutting back to shutting down to going into bankruptcy. Okay. And now to get more into how you um, contributed to the prediction of the housing bubble in 08, and then maybe after that, we can get into other Austrians who have predicted other crises. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what the skyscraper curse is and what you observed there? Yeah, sure. The skyscraper curse is the unlikely correlation of the building of a world record setting skyscraper and then an impending economic crisis. And this correlation goes all the way back into the 19th century, and it's had an uncanny record of making accurate predictions. Of course, it's not a person, it's, you know, it's not a mechanism, it's just an indicator of what's going on in the economy. So in this period of artificially low interest rates, when everybody's making money uh, and the value of assets is going up, um, it's almost inevitable that somebody will try to set a new world's record. Uh, okay, so the record-setting skyscraper is just a symbol, really, of the artificially low interest rates, the mania of speculation that's going on eventually in the economy, and then ultimately uh, an economic crisis. And as I said, that's gone back um, you know, into the 19th century, it's not something that Austrians used. Uh, it's only been around and known of for about 25 to 30 years. Um, Austrians use the Austrian business cycle theory, of course, and keeping an eye on what central banks are doing to interest rates uh, to make their predictions. Mm. 
Okay. Now, for myself, in the housing bubble, um, well, we knew bubble conditions were uh, were there basically in the early two thousands, and um, you know sometimes you you sort of rely on um, psychological processes that are taking place in the economy, and what was going on in two thousand four was uh, people were flipping houses where you'd buy a house at any price and then try to turn around and resell it to somebody for a higher price that was going on. Uh, you had, um, you know, everything from cab drivers to philosophy professors talking about, uh, you know, the boom in the economy and the value of their stocks and, uh, and those kind of things. My brother and his business, I talked to him one day and, uh, he said, you know, what he was able to do for his customers and for himself and for his company. He said, Mark, it's almost too good to be true. And um, the next day I was talking with a colleague of mine in the economics department at Auburn, and he had a rental house that he was uh, going to sell. And the real estate agent and he went to the house and put up a for sale sign on a Sunday afternoon and by late Sunday afternoon, he had already had eight offers on the house. And the last one was worth $20,000 more. This is a small house too, $20,000 more than the asking price. Hmm. And so I immediately uh, sat down at my computer and typed out that article, um, on the housing bubble, uh, housing, uh, too good to be true. And indeed it was, and housing was the epicenter of the collapse. And of course, that tied into the mortgage-backed security markets uh, and everything al along those lines. And pretty soon, uh, you saw signs going up all, uh, all over the town, uh, all over the country uh, of economic distress. And so, you know, you have the Austrian business cycle theory, but you actually have to uh, be out and about in the economy, uh, looking at markets, everything from national markets to your local markets. Uh, you have to be talking to people and, uh, you have to be listening to people more importantly, uh, see what they're saying just recently, uh, before this virus hit, I was at the gym and two friends of mine were on the stationary bikes and they were talking, they were both retired. And they were talking about their portfolios and that they were getting more money out of their portfolios than they could spend in any given month. And they were sort of giggling away. And I, I turned to them, I said, you know, you guys are the best sign that we're heading into an economic crisis very, very soon. Mm -hmm. And this was, this was right before the virus really uh, was known about. Right. And can you can you speak a little bit about how bubbles are, are formed in particular markets? Like why why was housing chosen and how can we how do governments determine, I guess, where the bubbles will form? That's a great question. Um, the cause of, of bubbles in, in the business cycle is the Federal Reserve and its interest rate monetary policy. But bubbles are usually bubbles in particular areas. And so 
there are particular reasons, uh, especially at the time, when uh, the, the government was essentially funneling the bubble into the housing market. And it does so in a number of different ways. Uh, there's tremendous tax advantages to investing in real estate, which were increased uh, right before this bubble started. Um, there was a Community uh, Reinvestment Act and, um, you know, where banks are forced uh, to uh, lend money to people who don't have any good credit. And that program was enhanced uh, in 1999 so that banks were forced to lend even more money to people without good credit. And then finally, there are things like mortgage-backed securities, uh, which I'm sure many of you have heard of. And there's a lot of other of these packaged securities whereby banks can lend mortgages and then bundle a large group of these mortgages into tranches. It's a big uh, conglomerate um, uh, investment package. Um, and it's assumed that only a certain percentage of mortgages will fail and, uh, and uh, the owner will go under and the housing, the house will have to be repossessed by the bank. Uh, and so they created formulas as to, you know, what's the percentage? And then we cut that percentage off of the, the mortgage-backed security. And we, we label that as non-investment grade uh, assets. And then the rest of it is graded at AAA. So it's, it was thought to be the equivalent of a U.S. government bond. And so those that part of the package uh, can essentially be used by banks as collateral, allowing them to lend even more money than they're supposed to. So in a variety of different ways, um, and most of this started either in the late 90s or early 2000s, uh, to really funnel huge amounts of capital uh, into the housing sector. And so all of those things together create the adjective housing, but the Fed creates the bubble. Okay, and that's and that's by injecting money into particular markets. Yeah, they're, the Fed is inject, injecting uh, money into the banks, and then the banks, you know, they 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 have a wide variety of ways uh, that they can lend their money. Uh, businesses, nonprofits, real estate mortgages, you know, a variety of different ways they can lend their money um, or they can buy government bonds or they can do it, you know, uh, many, many different things. But because of all these government programs, and I w will say that uh, uh, I did another article about what the Fed was saying in 2007 and they were basically all saying everything was great, everything was hunky-dory, and that these mortgage-backed securities were the, the best thing since sliced bread, uh, or for your younger viewers, the best thing since the iPhone. <laughs> and, um, and so that's how the money get, got funneled mostly into the real estate housing market. It's actually interesting you did mention just at the end there that a lot of people were praising a lot of these tactics and they they have been for 
um, probably a hundred years. Do you want to go back to certain Austrian minded people who throughout history have called out like certain tactics that the government has been using? Like we can go back to the 1920s um, with Mises and talk a little bit about that. Sure. But I would like your listeners to know that if they Google my name and the paper, what the the Fed was saying in 2007, which is the year in between really the bubble and the bursting of the bubble. So it was sort of a neutral period. uh, But, you know, I use a large number of quotes from the leading people at the Federal Reserve including the chairman and the vice chairman and, and board members and so forth, um, and see what they were saying in 2007. Uh, because, you know, the Federal Reserve is like a con game. They try to uh, con us into thinking uh, that everything is okay and that the Fed is here to save us, when in fact they're the ones that are causing the problem. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we can go back to the 1920s, um, uh, Ludwig von Mises was offered an important position uh, at an important bank in Austria in 1923, and he told his friends and his wife that, no, he wasn't going to do that because eventually this thing is going to come unraveled and we're going to have an economic depression. And uh, so, so he knew all along, and Friedrich Hayek and some of the other younger Austrians Uh, predicted an economic depression for Austria and worldwide uh, in 1928 and 1929. Mises himself wrote a book published in 1928. It's a nice uh, short book, uh, very readable, and it was called The Cause of the Economic Crisis. So that was a a book-length prediction that we were headed for an economic depression. And he labels specifically American economist Irving Fisher and his idea that the Federal Reserve or central banks in general should work to keep the value of the dollar stable, uh, to keep interest rates from fluctuating too much. Um, And that's precisely what happened. Uh, The Federal Reserve uh, used Irving Fisher's ideas uh, throughout the 1920s, and of course, that got us in a huge mess, um, the Great Depression. So that was the first one, and, um, and and you know, the Austrian economists were still in Austria at the time. Uh, they, they were driven out uh, in the 1930s uh, because of the threat of the Nazi invasion, uh, which happened in the late 1930s, Mises had left the country. He was Jewish. He was um, a libertarian, which uh, the, the Nazis really hated. They, they sent a special team in to grab him. Uh, he was gone. They took all of his papers and, and possessions, brought him back to a uh, intelligence warehouse, uh, thinking that they might have unlocked, uh, that Mises may have unlocked uh, the key to solving the problems of socialism. Mm. He had earlier written a book in 1920 uh, showing that socialism was impossible, and he was eventually uh, right about that, and that was acknowledged. 
Um, so that was a very big period. Um, and, uh, of course, unfortunately, instead of rising to the top, so to speak, uh, Keynes published a book in 1936 and, uh, which said government should spend and borrow and regulate and intervene. Uh, and that won the hearts of politicians, uh, rather than Mises's ideas of limited government, uh, gold standard money, uh, and things of that nature, which politicians, of course, don't like. Right. Uh, they, they're restricted uh, by limited budgets and, and the gold standard. So, uh, and then really the next big crisis uh, in the United States uh, began in 1970. It lasted to um, 1982, and it was called the Great Stagflation. Uh, and the great stagflation was the unthinkable combination of unemployment and inflation. Mainstream economists think that, well, you either get unemployment and low inflation or full in employment and high inflation. Uh, they, they could never think of the idea that you could get both simultaneously high inflation and high employment. But in the late 1960s, um, the Austrians uh, saw all this coming. Uh, Ludwig von Mises, who was uh, very old and would soon die, uh, he was out there giving speeches and writing articles saying that uh, what we're doing in terms of money and spending is wrong and it's going to end badly. Um, we had uh, Henry Hazlitt, who was an editor for, you know, places like the New York Times and Newsweek. Uh, he had retired, uh, but uh, only recently did I find that he went and uh, started writing for the Los Angeles Times. Hmm. He wrote over 150 articles for the New York or for the Los Angeles Times, and virtually every one of them were warnings about how much money the government was spending on poverty programs and the Vietnam War, uh, the military, and so forth, and was artificially increasing the money supply in order to pay for that. Uh, and so he was a very vocal uh, voice uh, trying to tell the American people that trouble was ahead. Uh, Murray Rothbard, Murray Rothbard uh is also a very, very important Austrian economist. And he wrote a pamphlet uh, called The Causes of the Economic Crisis. And it's a very short pamphlet. We have it online in PDF. Uh, and it really explains what everyone needs to know about the Fed and the business cycle. Yeah. So Austrians were very, very uh, vocal, even though there were very, very few Austrians left. Um, and uh, they were clearly warning before 1970 of what was to come. And what came uh, in the 1970s and early 1980s uh, was the terrible economic conditions. Um, I grew up during that time, and it was very, uh, very difficult economically. And uh, because of this high inflation and high unemployment, uh, we had shortages, we had price controls, there were oil shortages uh, where you could only buy gasoline every other day. 
and you were limited in the total amount you could you could purchase. Uh, so you had uh, long lines at gas stations, uh, a seemingly bizarre uh, situation that I remember uh, very well. It occurred before I could drive, mm-hmm. and uh, you you want to go get some gasoline, and you'd end up in very very long lines, similar to today's uh, lines to get um, food from uh, charitable organizations. Uh, really scary, uh, especially for kids, I think, but really scary for everyone. And uh, and so that was a a great uh, prediction, uh, and. Uh, Throughout the stagflation of the 1970s, Murray Rothbard and F.A. Hayek, who had kind of retired from economics, he came back onto the scene. Uh, He wrote uh, at least three pamphlets explaining, uh, you know, what the problem was, what the cause of it was, and what the solution was. And uh, he eventually won the Nobel Prize in economics Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, so they were working throughout this whole period and and Rothbard and Hayek in particular were saying, you've got to raise interest rates. You've got to, uh, stop increasing the supply of money. Uh, and eventually, uh, Paul Volcker came to the helm of the fed and, uh, and did just that. He raised interest rates, he choked off the money supply, uh, and the economy at first uh, was very, very difficult conditions, almost depression-like conditions, but very quickly the economy recovered. Uh, So I think that whole period is an excellent period uh, to study. I have a long chapter of that in my book, The Skyscraper Curse, Uh, and everybody in your audience can get a free copy, electronic copy of that book. Uh, just by Googling Mises.org, Mark Thornton, Skyscraper Curse, PDF, and you should gain access to uh, a click which allows you to download the book for free. So in any case, um, I guess uh, the next uh, major economic crisis was the tech uh, stock bubble. Uh, We had a big run-up in tech stocks in the uh, second half of the 1990s, uh, in the year 2000, that bubble cracked and crashed. Uh, hundreds of uh, internet and electronic type companies went out of business. Uh, fortunately, the government didn't intervene. Uh, they didn't try to save those companies. And so fortunately, the um, the uh, the economy recovered fairly quickly. Uh, is because the government didn't intervene. And, uh, well, there's, a, you know, there's uh, 50 uh, Austrians probably who were predicting that crisis. And I have a chapter in the book where I go through some of the Austrians who predicted that. Uh, as a matter of fact, they have a whole journal article on the subject, which is summarized in the book. And also I'm I'm also, in all of these crises, I'm quoting mainstream economists as well, Keynesians and so forth, Mm. uh, and what they thought was going on. Well, they're always totally misled by the bubble. And so um, during bubble conditions, 
the mainstream economists are cheerleading the whole thing, think it's going to go on forever and ever. Um, and they look like real uh, zombies uh, in the aftermath. Uh, and the, the same thing held true uh, during the Japanese stock bubble. Um, you know, it went up to, I think it's like 15,000 now. It went up to like 36,000 in uh, 1989. And uh, American mainstream economists were saying that the Japanese economy was going to take over the world, uh, that we'd all be working for Japanese owners and managers. And of course, their predictions there uh, don't look good at all. Uh, they got everything completely back backwards. Uh, unfortunately, there were there, there are no to this day. There's only a couple economists in Japan who would consider themselves Austrian. And of mm -hmm. course, because of the Japanese culture, no one person is going to stand up and declare that this great uh, victory of the Japanese economy is somehow a delusion. And so no, nobody really predicted the crisis um, beforehand. Right. And, uh, and then um, we go past the um, Japanese stock bubble and the tech bubble, and we get to the housing bubble. And I predicted, uh, I think I have three written predictions, published predictions about the housing bubble from January into June of 2004. And I was giving interviews and uh, giving public speeches about this. And everybody said, you're wrong. Um, I gave a presentation about this in the economics department in 2000, 2006, because I'd written an extensive uh, chapter about the housing bubble and uh, which was supposed to be published in 2006. And everybody in the economics department thought I was nuts. Right. And uh, people in the economy thought I was nuts. Uh, but Austrians started talking about the housing bubble in 2003, I believe. And uh, in the book, it gives you many, many examples of, of who predicted it and how they predicted it and what they recommended uh, to try to undo it with the least amount of pain uh, possible. And so, um, yeah, the uh, once again, with major economic crises, the Austrians can sense uh, a bubble. And uh, ultimately, of course, the theory tells us that all bubbles have to end badly. And they did. This is separate and distinct from forecasting the normal ebbs and flows mm -hmm. in an economy just a, you know, small recessions and small growth spurts. Austrians are not very good at that kind of thing at all. Uh, and we don't really pay much attention to that. We don't use statistical analysis, which mainstream economists do. Uh, and so they can, with the normal ebbs and flows and the normal trends in economy, uh, mainstream economists get that right usually. But when it comes to the major things uh, that threaten the economy, that threaten society, um, the Austrians have a much better track record and the mainstream economists have a terrible uh, 
a terrible record at trying to predict those things. They usually get it completely wrong, completely backwards. And then, of course, um, the current situation, um, you know, and what's going on there. You know, the Austrians have been predicting this uh, for a long time. I think that this economy and this stock market could have crashed a long time ago. Um, but as many of you know, um, for the last several years, every time the economy has started to crack uh, and the bubble starting to burst, the Federal Reserve has come up with some brand new untried uh, policy to dump enormous amounts of credit into the market. And that's how it's basically kept interest rates at zero. But interest rates at zero, the economy was, was cracking too. And so they came up with things like quantitative easing and QE2 uh, and Operation Twist and you know all sorts of things and that's what they're doing right now actually is they're trying to invent new ways of getting even more credit into the economy and so they're they're doing even more untried uh with no historical precedent in the united states um you know so they're buying things like junk bonds to keep that market afloat yeah. uh eventually i think they'll they'll even do something that's very taboo for central banks, which is to buy equities in the economy to keep stock prices high. Um, you know, and the Japanese central bank did that. Uh, but you certainly don't want an economy where the Federal Reserve uh, is the major owner of all the major corporations uh, in the economy sitting on all the boards of directors. Um, this is this is that would not end well at all right but they're, they're they're experimenting they're throwing out money left and right they're um as t is typically the case they're they're giving the vast majority of their subsidies to big corporations big institutions and they're you know handing out little bags of airplane peanuts to you and me right and uh so you know they're doing very bad things. Uh, I would say not only irrational and non-economic, but unethical as well, uh, because all the government debt that's obviously has to be created here uh, is something that's not going to do the trick. It's not going to fix fix the situation, and it's going to burden future generations like yourself and. Um, you know, what's to come of all that? Well, I'm afraid it's not going to end well at all. Right. And uh, we can't know in particular how it's going to end, but uh, drastic things are going to take place. Is there is there any tactic to devalue the debt through all of this? Is part of the reason that they're printing um, to devalue the dollar in order to pay back that debt? Well, yeah, I mean, that's what's happening in a large amount. I mean, something that's, um, you know, didn't happen to any great extent going back um, before the housing crisis to the beginning of the Fed, the central bank, 
that really never happened. It certainly didn't happen on the gold standard at all. Uh, they were tightly controlled and very much limited into what they can do. But basically, I mean, the Treasury is issuing uh, bonds, uh, which are purchased by banks, and then the Fed comes in and purchased the bonds um, from the banks. And uh, so they're, they're basically uh, indirectly uh, injecting cash and credit into the economy in a, enormous amounts. I mean, we were very concerned when they uh, had a, a balance sheet of $4 trillion. Uh, um, and eventually, after many, many years, they started trying to sell some of that balance sheet back into the economy. Well, the economy and the stock market reacted very badly, so they stopped doing that. And now, as this crisis um, develops, uh, the uh, Treasury, uh, the government basically has decided to inject uh, the equivalent of over $6 trillion and uh, $2.5 trillion of that is uh, going in, into various sectors of the economy. You know, the Harvard uh, got a $8.9 million uh, subsidy. And, you know, so it's going to mostly to elites and big corporations. It's going to restaurant chains rather than mom and pop type restaurants. And... And, uh, and then there's also a $4 trillion plus dollar, um, support for financial institutions. So, and then there's much more to come. They're working on another uh, $350 billion more credit for the Small Business Administration. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they offered $350 billion to small businesses uh, on a Friday and by Monday, the money was gone. Right. And so they're, they're back at it in Congress trying to come up with a figure of 300, 350, 400 billion dollars. Um, and this is not going to solve the situation. So if they continue to go down this avenue without opening up the economy, um, it's, it's not going to work. It's just going to create a larger, uh, national debt and, uh, you know, closing down the economy is going to be very difficult to reopen the economy. Uh, you know, a lot of businesses, restaurants, mom and pop operations, uh, small businesses, um, we don't know if they're ever going to come back. Right. We don't know what's going to happen to the structure of the labor market. We don't know what's happening to people who uh, work in nail salons or barber shops. Uh, things of that nature, what's happening to them, uh, um, it's not good. And uh, I have not looked at looked at the s- statistics, but I think that things like, unfortunately, suicides, um, alcohol and drug abuse, uh, problems within the family, um, all of these problems have yet to be counted. And I think that they're going to be very significant. And I think that a lot of people are going to die, not of the virus, but of the shutdown itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was planning on this economic crisis. So 
I was fairly well stocked uh, in terms of the basics of canned goods and paper goods and, you know, stuff like that, medicine. Um, but, you know, most people, uh, you know, they, this is a, this is an important point and it's one that is, uh, I wrote an article, it should be coming out in the next couple of days on Mises.org where I lay out the entire economy as it existed before the virus showed up. Mm. And yes, labor markets are, all-time low record unemployment. So that's an all-time low record unemployment. That means basically anybody who wants a job can have a job. As a matter of fact, in December, um, we had a record all-time high of job openings in the economy. Something like 7.5 million was a record that's the highest it's ever been as long as that statistic has been counted. And uh, that number started to fall. And so I had a sense that the economic crisis was right around the corner before the virus hit. Okay, but when we look at the consumer prior to the virus, it's not a pretty picture. Okay, Um, people have very low savings. I think it's um, 60% of American households have no savings. Uh, official savings, that is. Um, and a third of uh, the number uh, had less than $1,000 in savings. Mm. So very few people with any kind of substantial savings in this supposedly wonderful economy. And they also have a lot of debt. You know, So you're in a situation that is exactly what you don't want to have. You want to have very low debt levels and no credit card debt or anything like that. And you want to have plenty of savings. If you get sick, if you're hurt, um, if you lose your job, uh, it's just a miserable situation for people. So when we look at the consumer prior to the virus showing up, what we see is the vast swath of these people have almost no savings and they have very high debt levels. Can you kind of make the connection for people why high interest rates would have incentivized this? I don't think a lot of people understand exactly what the interest rate does in um, incentivizing people to spend. Well, that's right. Um, you know, when you have low interest rates, and I think um, the interest rate on my savings account is 0.01 of 1%. Okay, so that's, you're getting no market incentive to save. And given the fact that interest income is taxed and that saving sitting in the bank is being inflated away, um, it's not that Americans are slothful uh, or bad people. It's just that they don't have any incentive with these artificially low interest rates to save money. Uh, On the other hand, you know, in the past, uh, the typical rate of interest on savings accounts was any like three or four percent. Uh, and on the gold standard, your money was appreciating, not depreciating. So you got sort of a bump um, from disinflation. Uh, um, so we've changed all of the incentives to, to save 
because of the fact that we have paper money that central banks are inflating the supply of. And then if you do earn any interest, um, or if you earn dividends in dividends paying stocks, um, you have to pay taxes on it. So it's just a completely wrong mindset. But of course, mainstream economists think that it's consumption that drives the economy, uh, which is completely wrong. It's not consumption that drives the economy. It's production that drives the economy. And, and so they've got it completely wrong from the start. So they see Keynesians, for example, see savings uh, as a leakage from the economy. So they want to discourage savings, which, you know, if you have plenty of savings, any kind of artificial or natural disaster that hits you in your household, uh, you have a way of waiting out the storm, so to speak, uh, surviving to work another day to get another job. Um, and you're not in a nervous, petrified situation. You're calm, cool, collected, and you can uh, reintegrate yourself uh, back into the economy, back into labor markets, make adjustments um, along the way to your spending and, and so forth. Um, but this thing hit so quick and it hit uh, a dysfunctional labor market and a very dysfunctional consumer. And, you know, when you, and the important thing here is, you know, if you look at averages or total savings in the economy, you look at the aggregates the way uh, Keynesians do, if you look at the way the Keynesians view the economy with savings as a leakage uh, and you want to prevent savings at all costs and you want to increase consumption at all costs, um, that's a real problem. And uh, they get it wrong from the very beginning um, and that they've essentially been in charge. The Austrians view savings as very, very important uh, for all the reasons I've discussed about protecting yourself against job losses and downturns in the economy, uh, Keynesians see it exactly the opposite. They think that savings is a leakage from the economy. Uh, they think that consumer spending is the driving force of an economy. And you'll hear this all the time on CNBC, the local news, the national news. Uh, you know, that's the lead in uh, is consumption in the economy, which, of course, consumption is the ultimate end, uh, but you can't consume what you haven't produced. Right. And so Austrians argue that it's production that really matters. And if you want to increase production, you have to have real savings in the economy that's going to go to banks, that's going to go to businesses, that's going to invest in capital equipment and computers and um, new stores and so forth. And all of that's going to require more workers and more workers are going to re require higher wages. So that's what economic growth is in the absence of a Fed is that it's normal interest rates that induce people to save uh, and allow banks to expand credit normally and naturally, not artificially. Right. And so you don't get a business cycle. You get investment in what's really needed uh, by businesses for consumers and 
you know, and then you get higher production and you get higher wages. Right. And that's how it's supposed to work normally. But the crazy Keynesians uh, just get it all wrong because they think that it's consumption and demand that matters. They think the consumer is the driving force in the economy. And so they're always trying to cook up ways uh, to spur consumption. And one of their biggest concerns is psycho psychology. So they, they are all constantly worried that the consumers will cut back on spending, uh, that they're going to be afraid. Um, and, you know, as a consequence of this fear, uh, they, uh, they don't, consumers don't want to spend, uh, but it's only for, from psychological reasons. And that's what their theory of the business cycle is all about is psychology. It's not really an economic theory of the business cycle. It's a psychological theory of the business cycle where at some points in times, entrepreneurs become overly optimistic and uh, they fully invest in the economy and consumers are happy too. And so they uh, consume a lot and the economy uh, moves forward as a result. And then at some point in time, for whatever reason, and that's important, you'll always hear them say, for whatever reason, they don't, they don't specify the reason, they don't specify an economic cause, they just say that people become unoptimistic, and then when things start to go bad, they become uh, psychologically damaged and unable to act and unable to, you know, do normal processes in the economy. And so the economy sinks into a depression. But the Keynesian uh, view of the business cycle is based entirely on psychology. And the other schools of economic thought, like the Chicago School um, and, and the real uh, business cycle theory, uh, they believe that it's technological shocks that, you know, you might get some kind of good uh, shock in the economy and the economy will expand. But then you could get some kind of uh, bad shock and the economy contract. So notice that their theory of the business cycle is based on technology, technological shocks, whether they're positive or negative. That's what causes the economy to either boom or to bust. And so the other schools of thought with respect to business cycles, the Keynesians are psychological and the real business cycles people are technological. Whereas the Austrian business cycle theory is economic mm. in that the cause is a distortion in interest rates. Now we of course recognize fully the psychological and the technological aspects of a business cycle. And we incorporate both psychology and technology into our business cycle theory. For example, when the central bank keeps interest rates artificially low, what happens is that not only do entrepreneurs invest more, but they invest in new things 
so that the technology is changing because they're investing in brand new things. And uh, so as a consequence, we fully recognize the psychological and technological changes that occur in a business cycle. But we also have an economic cause, which is the cause or the driving force of the business cycle. Now, I do have one audience question that I want to ask you. Um, someone is asking, uh, what is the most important Austrian book in the last few decades? Wow, it's a great question. Um, well, you know, a great place to start is with uh, Murray Rothbard's work. And you can, you can start with that little pamphlet that he wrote in 1969, The Causes of the Economic Crisis, uh, to get started. But his uh, 1962 book, America's Great Depression, was something that made the biggest impression upon me when I was a college student. Uh, and it really explains not only how we got into the mess of the Great Depression, but he also shows us what's the best way to get out of it, uh, which, of course, uh, was the exact opposite of what Franklin Roosevelt and uh, what the government did during the New Deal was exactly the opposite. Um, so those are good books. We have a brand new book out uh, today. Uh, it's on our website. And uh, it's so new, I don't even remember the title of it, but you can find it pretty easily. Uh, and it's free, and it's um, a book of recent articles by some of the leading Austrians um, and very important people about what was going on leading up to this economic crisis. So it's really uh, bringing together um, the fact that Austrians foresaw this economic crisis, which was triggered by the virus, but uh, not caused uh, directly. We, we would have gotten an economic crisis under any conditions. Let me put it that way. Right. And then you, know, you can get that for free. Uh, you can get my Skyscraper Curse book uh, for free. That's uh, from 2018. Uh, and so there's plenty of resources, um, really too many to list. But if you want the recent ones, I would say this brand new book that the Institute has published on Mises.org and my skyscraper book. So those are brand new sources. And then you can work your way back. Uh, I give all the references uh, going back to Mises in the 1920s um, regarding money, uh, interest rates, and business cycles. There's just really so much to offer. We have the largest economic webpage in the world, and it's almost all of it is written uh, for a general audience. There are, of course, technical things in our academic journal, the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics. But even there, you, the, uh, the, the average person can read and understand what we're talking about. Um, and... Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org, is um, open 24-7, 365. 
Uh, you don't have to register to use it. You don't have to pay to use it. Um, almost all of our resources are available for free. And even in our hardbacked uh, bookstore, the prices you'll find are very, very reasonable. Uh, they're specifically subsidized so that students can afford to buy them if they, or they can download them into PDFs if they prefer to read. Uh, the, the free versions, the PDFs are free, and uh, the hardback and paperback books are very reasonably priced. Well, yeah, if you want to just tell people where you can find you, um, that would be great. I really much appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Uh, but almost all of my stuff is on mises.org. Uh, I have a little biography section uh, and uh, all of my books, um, except my book on the Civil War, are available for free uh, downloads. And um, yeah, so I, I encourage everybody, uh, especially in this time where, you know, we, uh, a lot of us are held up in our homes, uh, isolated. It's a great time to learn a few things. And, uh, you know, we cover the whole gambit of Austrian economics and libertarian political theory. And um, so, uh, this time off is uh, is a great time to to put it to good use to take your mind off of CNN for uh, a long time and really dig into this get your mind off of the virus and into economics and into the real causes uh, of our problems today you know uh, they're starting to come out with st statistics regarding infection rates and death rates and all that stuff that say that this may not be any worse uh, than the common flu season or maybe a bad flu season. And, and um, so you really do need to get your mind off of it. And the, one of the best ways to put that to use is uh, to learn some Austrian economics. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Screen on, not really, though. You were probably.